0: I'm sure you know more than I that next week is reading and research week, so we won't have chapel services. If you show up, enjoy yourselves. Just turn the lights out when you go home. (laughs) Student Council is sponsoring a revival meeting this Friday night and Saturday night, 7 o'clock in Strickland. So I want to make sure that that you make room in your schedule for that. And then finally, we are all here so that we can to keep the uh, Dr. Tom Umbel is going to help us that, do that with the message this evening. The song I want to start with, I'm not sure you know. <laughs> so I'm just going in not sure you know, not sure you're knowing it. Let's pray. All I am is yours, O God. Tonight we we bask in the glow of our Easter celebration. We glory in the cross. We praise you for the empty tomb. Christ is risen. Because of our Lord's great sacrifice we share in his abundant life and have the hope of eternal life. Lord as we hear from your word tonight give us eyes to see ears to hear and hearts to follow in obedience to your leading. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> There once was an old church member who always prayed, Lord, prop us up on our leaning side. Someone asked him why he prayed that way so fervently. He answered, well, you see, it's like this. I've got this old barn out back. It's been there a long time. It's withstood a lot of weather, it's gone through a lot of storms, and it's stood for many years. In fact, it's still standing. But one day I noticed it was leaning to one side a bit. So I went and got some poles and propped it up on the side that was leaning so it wouldn't fall. And then I got to thinking about that and how much I was like that old barn. I've been around a long time. Not, not that long. I've withstood a lot of life storms, a lot of hard times in life, and I'm still standing too. But I find myself leaning to one side from time to time. Sometimes we too get to leaning toward a lot of things that we shouldn't. So we need to pray, Lord prop us up on our leaning side so we will stand straight and tall again, bringing glory to your name. Our chapel theme this year has been about running. How do we run this race of life in Christ? Well, I would suggest that we run by standing firm. A little boy went to a country fair with his dad. He saw one of those inflatable clowns that you try to knock down. Of course, the harder you hit it, the quicker it flies right back up. The father watched as the little boy repeatedly punched the clown, only for it to bounce back up again. Finally the dad interrupted him and asked, how is it possible for the clown to keep standing back up no matter how hard you hit it? The little boy scratched his head and said, Daddy, I think this clown is standing up on the inside. As We run the race of life in Christ. We face all sorts of challenges. Sometimes life beats us up. It's not a question of if, but when and how hard. Aren't you glad tonight that God's word doesn't deny the harsh realities of life? The Apostle Paul didn't either. In fact, Paul often wrote about his life experiences or those of the first century churches. The shipwrecks, the beatings, the doctrinal disputes, the countless issues that he encountered. And we were reminded last week during Holy Week that we don't live on what Richard Foster called the fluff side of faith. There is a scene in the movie, The Passion, where Jesus is carrying the cross. He fell due to the pain of his wounds and the weight of the cross, but he kept getting up. St. Paul declared, we are more than conquerors, but that declaration comes on the other side of hardship and distress, persecution and famine, nakedness and peril and sword. And so great insight and inspiration comes to us when real life intersects with the real truth of God's word. This has been a real life kind of year, hasn't it? for our nation, for our college, for many of you who, like that clown at the fair, have been punched over and over again. And as I've thought about these things, there is a passage that I just haven't been able to get away from. It's been teaching me, feeding me, sustaining me. In running the race, I've been learning an awful lot about standing firm on the inside. And I think the Apostle Paul gives us some very wise counsel in Philippians chapter 4. Tonight I want to highlight for you three key words, all in the imperative form. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4, I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 5. And keep your Bibles open because I'm going to be reading different portions of this chapter as we work through the message. Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with you, Odia and Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now first of all, the word Paul uses for stand firm is the word used for a soldier standing fast in the shock of battle, with the enemy surging down upon him. Stand firm, he says. And the first command word in this passage is rejoice. (laughs) Rejoice. And for good measure, Paul repeats it. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, as you know, the book of Philippians, besides being the most intimate of Paul's letters, has often been called the epistle of joy. Sixteen times in this little letter, Paul uses some form of this word. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, he started. But what really struck me was that Paul was writing to a situation where saying rejoice seemed totally unreasonable. These were not the best of times for Paul or the congregation in Philippi. Paul was in prison. I am in chains for Christ, he wrote. The aging apostle was contemplating what it would be like to go and be with Jesus. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. There were other threats. Watch out for those dogs, he wrote in chapter three. There was some conflict in the church itself. Tell Euodia and Syntyche to get their act together. And this group of believers faced persecution. Don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, as you know, in some situations of life, it would be the height of insensitivity to say to someone, rejoice. Don't worry, be happy. We don't deny the hardships of life. Ministry connects with reality. It doesn't avoid it. And Paul certainly didn't take all of these things lightly. But he had earned the right to say these words. Whatever it is, prison, internal conflict, external persecution and threats, whatever you are facing, rejoice. Whatever you are going through, there is always some reason for the believer to rejoice. Now, come on, brother Paul. Don't you know what we're going through here? Oops. Wrong question. Paul did know. He was living it, enduring it. See, the human tendency in the hard times is to be downcast and feel sorry for ourselves, to become self-absorbed. A rather gloomy fellow once wrote, life is difficult and then we die. (laughs) Well, the gospel simply won't allow us to be so pessimistic. Christian writer Tim Hansel goes to the heart of the matter. Hardship is inevitable, but misery is optional. We can't avoid hardship, but we can avoid joy. God has given us such immense freedom that He will allow us to be as miserable as we want to be. At any moment in life, we have at least two options. One of them is to choose an attitude of gratitude, a posture of grace, a commitment to joy. Rejoice! Now we can't do this in our own strength, can we? There are times we don't feel like rejoicing. Our true feelings and what would bubble up from the inside might produce something far different. So Paul gives us a, a couple of qualifiers here. Notice what he says about the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice, the Lord is near. You see, it's our connection with Jesus that produces this joy. There is simply no other source for the kind of joy we are talking about here. Has nothing to do with material things or outward circumstances. William Barclay wrote, a person upon whom life has apparently inflicted no blows at all can be gloomy and discontented. A person upon whom life has inflicted every blow possible can be serenely joyful. It is a living, growing faith in Christ that enables us to stand firm and deal with anything life throws at us. One sure reason we can rejoice, the Lord is near. He is present with us, he is available for us whenever and however we need it. We rejoice when we realize that God can transform the hardship into an instrument to grow us and touch the lives of others around us. We rejoice when we realize that others come alongside of us and show care and encouragement. We rejoice when the the little blessings of life remind us of the depths of God's love. So Paul says rejoice. Oh, and while you're at it, let your gentleness be evident to all. What a great word in the Greek this is. It's a justice term. Sometimes when we face painful situations, We're we're tempted to take matters into our own hands, to seek justice, to balance the scales. Real life comes our way. What to do? What to do? Well, there are times when believers should stand up against injustice. But in this one word, gentleness, Paul says, don't insist on your own way, don't retaliate, don't try to get even, don't keep score. He is saying in effect, remember how the Lord treated you when you deserve justice, judgment. Instead the Lord extended mercy. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Let this fruit of the Spirit show through your life. This is the way of the Lord. So stand firm, rejoice, and be gentle. The Lord who is ever present with you will enable you to do it. Let's go on with what Paul says here. I want to pick up again with verse 4 and read through verse 7 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul says to his brothers and sisters in Philippi. This was a a common note in Paul's writings. Romans chapter 12, rejoice in your hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. Colossians chapter 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. It's obvious that Paul cared deeply about his brothers and sisters in Philippi. You are my joy, he wrote. He spoke out of his own situation to help his friends cope with the tough times. We live in a fallen, broken world, And when we face hardship, the human tendency is to become restless and edgy. Paul understood that. He doesn't suggest some magic formula or spout off some nice sounding cliches, but he does remind them and us that there are reasons we need not be distressed. He throws out another command, don't be anxious about anything. Eugene Peterson in the message puts it this way. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. We can spend a a lot of time and energy being anxious. Instead, Paul says, practice the spiritual discipline of prayer. The great Protestant theologian Karl Barth wrote, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. Prayer and more prayer. Paul says, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. In everything, absolutely everything, pray. Oh, and by the way, Paul writes, when you pray... Do so in a spirit of thanksgiving. In the midst of everything you face, give thanks. The result will be the peace of God. A peace so vast, no mind can grasp it. A peace we experience, but just can't explain. A peace that produces much better results than our human planning ever could. A peace that guards our hearts like a detachment of soldiers protects a fortress from enemy attack. Two other things about prayer tonight as I've been thinking about this. Persistence and presence. Do you know why the mighty God of the universe chooses to answer prayer? It's really very simple. Because his children ask and they keep on asking. The tough times especially teach us to be serious about prayer, intentional, determined, disciplined. Our relentless God who pursues us by His grace invites His children to be persistent. We present our requests to God and keep on presenting them, Paul says. You know, a lesson I have learned over the years, the most important thing about prayer is not the answer, is not the answer. Our persistence in prayer leads us into the divine presence. We are made for God. Early Church Father Augustine wrote, God gives where he finds empty hands. And in prayer we are connected to a power much greater than ourselves, to change us, to guide us, to strengthen us. Sometimes life doesn't make sense. Sometimes God seems silent. Sometimes it takes a while for the answers to come, if they come at all. But we keep on presenting our request to God. We rest in His presence. We leave the answering to Him in His way, in His time. Persistence leads us into His presence. That's where we need to be at all times, especially in the hard times. It's been written, the righteous person strives in prayer with God and conquers in that God conquers. The story is told of the great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor. After years of service he came to a point of physical and emotional exhaustion he was just plain spent. Then some time later dozens of his fellow missionaries were massacred in the Boxer Revolution of 1900. The news was almost more than his aging heart and exhausted mind could endure. I cannot read. I cannot think. I find it hard to even pray, he admitted to his wife. But I can trust, he wrote, Paul wrote later in chapter 4, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I'm in prison here, people, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. My God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Some of you will remember Bob Benson, speaker, author, spiritual mentor to many. He once wrote, So fill me with thy life, O Lord, that I will feel your slightest touch, hear your softest whisper, see your faintest footprint, yielding in such glad obedience that others might see the grace and beauty of communion with you. Amen. So stand firm as you run this race. Rejoice. Pray. But there's a a third command word that I want us to look at in this passage. So take your Bibles once again. I want to pick up with verse 4 and read through verse 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The third imperative, command word, is think. Instead of rejoicing, sometimes we become self-absorbed we forget how near the Lord really is. Instead of praying, sometimes we become anxious and edgy. Another human tendency in the tough times is stinking thinking. Paul knew this. It's right there in the text. Get rid of the stinking thinking. As with rejoicing and praying, how believers think was important to Paul. And Paul used this strong word for think over 30 times in his writings. Reflect in a critical way. Your thoughts must continually dwell on these things. Absorb them into your very being. Paul says, deliberately fill your minds with good thoughts. He's very clear here. It's within our control, and we must be proactive about it. I like what William Barclay says here, the human mind will always set itself on something. Paul wanted to be sure that the Philippians set their minds on the right things. A number of years ago, you counseling cohort folks, I read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. He writes of his experience as a Jew in a Nazi concentration camp. The Nazis stripped the Jews of everything, clothes, books, papers, every personal memento that gave meaning to life. But, Frankel wrote, there was one thing the Nazis could never take away, our freedom to choose our attitude. Whatever the situation swirling around us, we can choose our frame of mind. This is precisely what Paul is talking about. We have control about how we think we must be proactive about shaping good thoughts. You know the motto, what would Jesus do? Now perhaps even more important, how would Jesus think? John Stumbo pastors a large Christian and missionary Alliance Church in Oregon. A few months back he became mysteriously ill and everything went downhill from there on his blog he recently wrote about what he called his traveling companions all of the medical paraphernalia that he has to drag around with him a walker a wound vacuum medication patches feeding tube his traveling companions are with him 24 7 but then then he shifted to talk about some other traveling companions and I quote they give evidence of the infirmities of our lives they tend to attach themselves to us when we face hardships pastor John wrote as I lay in bed I started asking myself am I packing around bitterness that's an attachment I don't want to haul around with me and grudges those are entirely unhealthy traveling companions. See, as we run the race of life in Christ, it's, it's natural and normal for hardships to bring these traveling companions. Potentially destructive thoughts like bitterness and grudges, judgmental spirit, envy, self-pity, and all the rest. These travel companions, Pastor John wrote, interrupt their journey with their seductive speeches. They try to knock us off track. But Paul says we are responsible. We don't lose control of our ability to shape how we think about any and every situation of life. Now throughout his writings, Paul taught us how this is possible. Let the mind of the master be the master of your mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul quoted Isaiah 40, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Ah, but we have the mind of Christ. In chapter 2 of this letter, Paul wrote, Your attitude, your mindset ought to be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And we all know what he did. In chapter 3, he mentioned those enemies of the cross of Christ their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, their mind is on earthly things. Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Get rid of the stinking thinking, it will drag you down and harm your witness. Develop habits of thinking that reflect the Lord whom you serve, Let the mind of the master be the master of your mind. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to the Christ. Again, the message puts it this way. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true and noble and authentic, compelling and gracious the best not the worst, the beautiful not the ugly, things to praise not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me what you heard and saw and realized. Do that and God will make things work together according to his perfect plan. Chapter 1 Paul wrote, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ." And So, stand firm as you run the race of life in Christ. Rejoice. Pray. Think about good things. I think these three commands really go together to form a a powerful spiritual equation. It really begins with prayer, doesn't it? And going deeper in the presence of God. That calming, reassuring presence then shapes right thoughts, good ways of thinking. We then rejoice. What other response is there? Because we know that God will enable us to carry on. Finally, there is one other place in this letter where Paul talked about standing firm. Chapter 1. He talked about his partnership with these believers and his prayers for them. He said his chains had actually encouraged others to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. He was torn between going to be with Jesus and remaining to serve his Lord. And then he wrote these words. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's really what it's all about, isn't it? And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel. Rejoice, pray, think good thoughts, we can do all these things through Christ who gives us strength. Amen. Gracious God, we are so thankful for your faithfulness. We pray, O God, that uh, we would sense the enabling of your presence this day and each day as we endeavor to run the race, to give witness to Your love and Your grace and Your peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.